Darkness Dwells is brought to you by Crystal Lake Publishing. Go to crystallakepub.com and go check out what they've got going. They've been publishing since 2012, and they are only getting bigger. They have published the likes of Ramsey Campbell, Mercedes Yardley, and Clive Barker, amongst many many more. We're also supported by audible.com. Go to audibletrial.com slash darkness dwells and pick out any book that you want when you sign up for a free trial membership. And that trial lasts for one month and you get any book you want for free. So go and check that out. Jason White. I am Michael Schutz. And this week, uh, real quick, we're just we're, we we talk with Gwendolyn Keist, and uh, we discuss the uh, 2017 French horror film Raw. So please stick around. So Michael, how are you doing? I am doing pretty well. Um, I've been reading a lot lately. I'm actually I'm doing something I never do. I'm reading two things at once. I am reading. Boy, I tell you. This was recommended to me when I wanted to read disturbing fiction. J.F. Gonzalez's Survivor. Oh, Holy yeah. crap. <laughs> this is almost, almost too much for me. Really? And that's saying a lot. That is saying uh, a lot. Almost. Almost. But yeah. Oh, boy. I got to the first Debbie part last night. Yay, boy, that was harder than than uh, Ketchum's The Girl Next Door. I gotta really? say, that was rough. So yeah, so headed for five stars for me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I am also reading our guest Gwendolyn Keist's collection, and her smile will untether the universe. And let me tell you, these short stories are fantastic. They I mean, they really are, aren't they? Wow. They're just, I can't, makes me want to, I either have to quit writing altogether or really up my game. I mean, I can't be doing, I can't do the same thing that I've always been doing. I tell you, when this is, something like that is out there, game changer. Yeah, she is, she is going places. And uh, I'm so happy that she agreed to come on the show and talk with us because, I was reading uh, The Rust Maidens when uh, I decided, you know what, I'm going to contact her, see if she'll be on the show. And uh, that book just blew me away. And then I went right into her collection there, and uh, it's just phenomenal. Phenomenal writing. It is. Wow. Reminds me a lot of, of Kelly Link, who I was recently turned on to. And she's another one, just very fantastic. They they write as if they went to some of the same classes. They're sort of it's almost like a new like a new school. Like I don't know, you'd have to come up with a new new name for this this type of fiction. 
like the new wave, the new, new horror wave. But yeah. yeah, wow. You know, Kelly Link is still an author I have yet to read. I've I've had her suggested that I read uh, many times. Ben Eads suggested I read her. Yes. You did, and a few others. I have her collection, but I've yet to read it. It's like, dude, just read the oh, goddamn thing. Which one? Yes. <laughs> have, which uh, one do you have? I have Get in Trouble. Oh, that was my first one. That's really good. Um, the New Boyfriend. That just, the imagination around that one is is just jaw-dropping. And then I, I was reading uh, Magic for Beginners. She has a story in there called Catskin. Man, that's just, you. she's just thinking on a whole different plane than what anybody else is thinking. Who thinks like that? Who thinks like that? It's amazing. Brilliant. That's awesome. You know, I, I'm looking forward to reading her because I, I think one reason why I've held it off, and this is something I do, and I don't know why, but just say I have a favorite author, and they come out with a new book, I'm all excited, I get the book, and then I don't read it. Why don't I read it? Because no. I want to savor it. I, I, I don't want it yes. to... I don't want it to me have read it and then be like, oh, well, now there's nothing like by this person anymore. And I... When yes. when I'm thinking of Kelly Link, I know that I'm going to love it, and uh, and I think that's one reason why. And also, I, I you know I I want to avoid the disappointment if I don't like it, but I'm pretty sure I will. I I can't see you not liking it. I'm pretty I'm pretty certain I will. <laughs> I might read it. Soon. And you know that's the great thing with collections and and uh, and anthologies, of course, but. Yes. Uh, you know, if one one or two stories don't hit, you'll you'll still find one or two stories that do. And well, you know that happens. I find that's true. I, I I'll read anthologies, and uh, uh, I won't remember the author name, but I'll remember it if I come across that story in uh, in their own collection when I get to it, and I'll be like, oh, I read this. Where did I read this? And then I'll go look, and sometimes yeah. I find it, sometimes I don't. But yeah, I really. I really need to uh, remember those, like everyone, because sometimes you just like, oh, who's this? Oh, okay, it's it's Kelly Link, cool. And then you read it, and then, you know, a couple years later, it's gone. You just you can't remember. You can't put yeah. two and two together anymore. Yeah, maybe that's yeah. I need thing. to. I three years ago, I intended to start a little little diary, a journal about everything that I watched and read, and just one or two lines about. But what it was, so that I would I would remember and I could look through. But yeah. I've got to keep up with it. <laughs> That's something I want to do as well because I I want to remember these things and uh, and you know it's fun just to look back and see what you were reading this day last year. You know what I mean? It is. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. All right. So uh, this episode, uh, as we were discussing. Uh, Michael and I, we both had a great conversation with Gwendolyn Keist. And uh, we also talked about the 2017 French film, Raw. So I think, uh, I, th I don't know about you, but I think I'm ready to jump into this one. Oh, let's do it. I've been, I've been ready. Um, first time I saw this movie was right after it came out. And uh, so I was so happy when, when you came to me and said, oh, let's do this movie. So... <laughs> Yeah. 
Welcome back. This week, as promised, we have one hell of an awesome guest. Uh, I'm happy to welcome Gwendolyn Keist. She is the the author of the Bram Stoker Award-nominated fiction collection, and her smile will untether the universe. I love that title, by the way. (laughs) And that's from Journal Stone. Uh, The Dark Fantasy Novella, Pretty Mary's All in a Row, from Broken Eye Books, and her debut novel, The Rust Maidens, from Trepidatio Publishing. Her short fiction has appeared in Nightmare Magazine, Shimmer, Black Static, Daily Science Fiction, Interzone, Lamplight, and Three-Lobed Burning Eye, as well as Flaming, or sorry, Flame Tree Publishing's Chilling Horror Short Stories Anthology, among many others. She is a native of Ohio and currently resides on an abandoned farm outside of Pittsburgh with her husband, two cats, and not nearly enough ghosts. (laughs) Welcome to the show, Gwendolyn. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. We're glad to have you. Before we get into anything, I was really interested, I, I was really interested asking you about that abandoned horse farm that you live in how did you uh how did you come to live in an abandoned horse farm my my husband had bought it before he and i were dating so it's all his fault but the person who owned it before us had had a bunch of horses that was like their living i believe and there's just like horse fences and horse troughs and like the whole the whole deal and yet no horses because we don't have horses so that's why we say it's an abandoned horse farm even though my husband always says it's not really abandoned like we live here but i'm like no horses yeah. <laughs> Unless it's course... really spooky when you say it like that. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking it's not really abandoned unless you guys are actually ghosts too. Ooh, oh, this just well, got this just gold, got weird. Gold. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> are there any ghosts? Uh, not a ton. I've had a couple like weird things happen, but nothing that sticks around. So I, I will say no for the moment, but maybe, maybe, maybe. there's okay. like a, we have a, a ghost in the house that we call third cat. Cause we have two cats. And then sometimes we see something that looks like a cat that isn't here. Like we don't have a third cat. And then what was really weird is we talked to somebody else who's like local to this area. And he was like, Oh yeah, that's a thing. Like just cats that aren't really there in this area and i'm like oh okay <laughs> like that's really scary and weird but there's cats. i'm so jealous oh i want something like that in my apartment <laughs> michael would love ghost cats yes <laughs> i would i oh well ghost cats yes definitely any kind of ghost though i've never had any experiences and and that's terrible <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm derailing our discussion now, but I I need to have a haunted experience. <laughs> you, you should seek this out, Michael. I'm gonna yes. have to come and visit. Can you guys put me up in the in the <laughs> hayloft there? And we will do our best. We will okay. make accommodations. Okay. <laughs> you know, I can't help but think that there's a story in this somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, so uh, I was reading an interview with you. Uh, it was in Black Static magazine where you discussed your childhood. Mm. Now, you mentioned mm. locking yourself away and reading books on the weekends and over the summer break. Now, this is something I know I can relate to, and Michael probably can too. Now, I was wondering what were those books you read back then, and uh, which ones made you want to become a writer? A lot of them were a uh, horror fiction anthologies like horror short fiction anthologies and 
I just, it was like a lot of some, sometimes they were more classic stories. So, you know, Ambrose Bierce, Edgar Allan Poe, and then other ones were, you know, I, I read Stephen King when I was fairly young. And so it was a lot of, a lot of the ones I feel many of us came to horror, you know, reading those, those early, those early stories that many of us discovered when, when we were young. So those were, those are the ones that immediately come to mind. And I've heard that you're also an independent filmmaker. Um, what not anymore. You... Not anymore. God. <laughs> Good experiences then. <laughs> yeah, right. I was a terrible filmmaker. I was not a. I was not a very good filmmaker. I feel like I'm. I'm much better as a as a fiction writer. I. Uh, I love the screenwriting part of it, but then actually directing actors, I. I would just get very frustrated, which I also get frustrated at my characters now, but they they don't get as, you know, angry at me. So, yeah, I just... Also, I always said, and this was something when I really, really kind of dedicated myself again to fiction writing, because I did fiction writing when I was younger and then, then went into screenwriting for a number of years and then came back to fiction writing. I felt that because I didn't have that much money for the filmmaking, that many things that I wanted to do felt at times very much out of my reach. Whereas as a, as a writer, we all pretty much at least, you know, have the most basic tools that, that any successful writer would have now, you know, we have, I have a laptop. So it's like, I feel at times that that's, that's what Stephen King probably writes on. So it's like, I, I felt that I could have a better chance at seeing what I can do rather than with filmmaking that I always felt like, uh, I could never quite get to where I wanted to. Now, maybe if I'd been a more creative filmmaker, I wouldn't have felt that way. It could just be because I was a really bad filmmaker. So, <laughs> <laughs> Have you thought about pursuing screenplays anymore? No, I really haven't. It, it's so funny because it was, I make it sound like it was all bad and it wasn't. That was how my husband and I met. You know, he was, he did special effects and also did acting. And then I did acting and screenwriting and directing. So, I mean, and I had, I made a lot of friends doing it and it was, it was actually a good experience for the time. It's just, my husband and I happened to burn out on it at exactly the same time. And we were kind of secretly not wanting to say anything to the other one because we were worried. And then one day, I think over like a bottle of wine, we're like, we're really, I'm really tired of this. And the other one's like, so am I. And it's like, oh, thank goodness. Like we can just move on at the same time. So that all kind of was very uh, synchronous, I guess. <laughs> so like those uh, early anthologies that you used to read, are there movies that have influenced your writing? Yeah, absolutely. So many, so many. I'm trying to think like what would be the ones that really, really jump out at me. I write a lot of body horror, so I always, I always think of David Cronenberg's work. So The Fly, The Brood. I, I just, I love those movies. I, I think that they're, they're creepy and and weird and also very, especially The Fly, very emotional. I mean, you're very emotionally invested and, and the body horror really plays into that emotional investment. So those are two that really jump to mind. And also I love classic horror, so the Universal films, Hammer films. You know, I very much grew up with those. Those were some of the earliest ones I ever saw. My, my dad loves the Universal horror films. His dad, my grandfather loved them. So it was definitely something that sort of passed down the generations on the case side of the, of the family. So that was, that's really cool. And those are really, really good memories, like Saturday morning, spending time watching old horror movies. You know, I used to watch those uh, old Hammer films on, they, were, they would always play them Sunday afternoons for some reason around here. And I always found that weird because mm -hmm. Like on other channels, it was all Disney films and whatnot. But then, 
but then you'd find these hammer horror films and i remember watching dracula melt uh you know with a stake in them like over and over again uh-huh. especially like around thanksgiving but yeah that's how i fell in love <laughs> with those films myself <laughs> yeah yeah, they were just, they were great weekend entertainment. I mean, they're great in entertainment anytime, but I feel like when you were a kid and, and it's not like, you know, it is now when you have so much entertainment at your fingertips, it, it really felt something special that, that it wasn't, you couldn't just watch it anytime. So it was this, this moment you had to catch it. So, yeah. And I have to say the fly, that movie really disturbed me as a child. Oh, I love <laughs> Rundle fly. Rundle fly. It's interesting because I didn't see that one until I was older. I had seen the original The Fly when I was a kid and I actually don't like it. And I I know I feel like I shouldn't say that because I know a lot of people love it and sort of like a sacred horror film to a lot of people. But I I just it it didn't it didn't do anything for me. And then I didn't see the remake, I think, until I was in my 20s and late 20s, I think maybe even my early 30s. I can't remember now, but I remember it wasn't that long ago. And I just loved it. I loved it so much. I had seen some of Cronenberg's other work when I was younger, and it always gotten under my skin. And then the fly was just like, it's terrifying, but it's so devastating, too. And I think that they, they very much worked with the fact that Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis were a couple at that time, they it really feels like a very natural relationship. And that worked so well to make it even more devastating, I think. So what was the kernel that made you change from writing uh, uh, screenplays and trying to make movies to, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to try to write short stories and, and fiction? Like I said, I had written fiction when I was younger and I think I've said this elsewhere. I was concerned that I wasn't going to be able to deal with the rejection of going into slush piles and being told no all the time. But after I had really burned myself out on filmmaking, I'm like, I can handle the rejection, I think. And it turned out I could. Like, I I was not very good at uh, handling rejection when I was younger. So I think that it probably was good that I just kind of went off on my own to do my own stories through films for a while and kind of figure out where I was as, as a storyteller and then came back to this and was... Yeah, happy. I'm happy that I, I don't take it too too hard, too hard. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I've got my abandoned horse farm. I can go out back and just scream. Nobody cares. <laughs> abandoned horse farm. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, you write, uh, like, I've been reading the hell out of you lately, and I find that you write beautifully, uh, like your prose is beautiful, and uh, and just your relationships in the story are, are really, uh, they're intense. And I, I find that you write very beautifully about uh, friendships in your fiction and, uh, you know, not just friendships, but like uh, family relations and whatnot. So I'm guessing that you, you probably had some close friends growing up. I did. I did. Because you, you sent me these questions ahead of time and I was looking at that and I'm thinking, yeah, I guess so. But I think in some ways, like I did, I did have a, several close friends, so I can't say no. But I think at other times, you know, I'm an only child. And I think sometimes we we look for those kind of friendships in life. And sometimes I think, you know, it's something that can be elusive sometimes and definitely at different points, because even some of my friends that I did have growing up, you know, I still talk to my best friend that I had, you know, I met on the first day of fourth grade, but we don't talk all the time. And she's moved away and moved back and I've moved away. So it's like you lose touch with people. And so sometimes I think that my work is exploring that kind of those gaps in relationships or that kind of loneliness when maybe you don't have those, those close friendships or when those close friendships end and how painful that can be. So kind of working with those ideas. Yeah, speaking of uh, friendships ending, 
and how painful that can be, which it can be. Uh, a lot of your stories I've noticed had a lot of, or a strong sense of, uh, of loss and longing. Now I'm not trying to be too nosy here. I'm not, uh, I'm not trying to make you cry or anything like some people <laughs> in interviewing positions would try to do, but I, I was wondering why do these themes seem to attract you? It's a great question. I, I am trying to think. I I think because I, I grew up, I was an only child, and I was always a very strange kid. I, like I said, I was into horror from the time I was really young. And being a girl in a small town who was really into horror, and I was outspoken, and I just kind of did my own thing, that, that could be a very lonely life at times. That could be, you know, you get bullied, you and people are not not always the nicest to those who are different. And I think that that was something I grew up thinking a lot about. And as an adult, you know, you, you still deal with it, sadly. Sometimes you hope when you're younger, oh, this will go away. It won't be so bad when I get older. But, you know, you still deal with a lot of that kind of sense of being on the outside at times. Yeah. And and I, I think that that's where a lot of it comes from. And again, like, you know, the loss of, of friendships of, of people close to you, either because you've grown apart or, or family members that have passed away over the years and, and, and things like that. It, I think it's sad because I feel like loss is probably one of the more universal things that we all experience. I'm not sure that everybody has ever experienced joy, but almost everyone has experienced loss. So it's something that that really does it's relatable for a lot of people. Plus, it's horror. You know, I love horror, and horror and loss seem to go very well together. So maybe that's that's part of it too. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Your fiction is a little uh, difficult to classify. Mm-hmm. Um, we're a little hesitant to call it weird fiction because there's like outright horror in there. If you were to classify your fiction, what would it be? say horror if i could only pick one one thing i would say horror maybe even quiet horror because it's definitely not the kind of you know gory or horror which i love too by the way i I always whenever i say that i never want to make it sound like oh that that gore horror because i love that too it's all great but (laughs) as, as a writer i do feel like mine's a little bit more on the kind of quieter side of horror and if not horror, I would say dark fantasy. I feel like a lot of my stuff is also kind of that dark fantasy. It's got horror elements, but I also bring in fairy tale elements and this kind of that those kind of feel to to the work as well. Very much so, especially yep. in your uh, collection of short stories. Yeah, I mean, there's one, you know, all the red apples of Withered to Grey in particular is very yes. much a kind of dark fantasy, very much pulling from fairy tales. And you mentioned you were a fan of Stephen King. So, I mean, he, of course, has been kind of moving into magic realism. So mm. do you kind of play in that as well? I do. I do. I actually didn't know Stephen King was into that, though. Now, it's interesting because, like, I feel like I read a lot of his short stories when I was younger, and I read Carrie, and then I haven't read a lot of other things. It was almost like I, I left it there because, like, my mom had read some of Stephen King's other stuff, and it's like, it's it's not as good as that. And so then I was almost afraid that I wouldn't like a lot of, like I would go back and not enjoy the other stuff as much. So I feel like I'm one of the rare people that's kind of like focused a little bit more on the on the early stuff and not as much on the later on the later work. So I didn't know he was into magic realism now, which now makes me very curious. You've piqued my interest. Not that Stephen King needs my my book sale, but you well. Know. <laughs> but yes. Yeah, I, I think he'll still appreciate realism. it, though. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> but I do love magic realism. I think that that can, I think that can work so well with horror. I don't think it's done a lot with horror, but I think that there's something very interesting 
about taking these kind of magical elements kind of for granted and then playing with those in, in a sort of horror setting. I, I feel like that can be very interesting when, when it's, when it's done effectively. I, I, I don't know that I would necessarily say this about her work, but Angela Carter comes to mind when I think of that, like the, the stories from like the bloody chamber. I, I don't know that I'd say those are necessarily magic realism, but they a little bit are. And there's definitely horror and then also fairy tale and dark fantasy kind of all wrapped up in that. And that, that can be really fun. Well, horror is kind of about not being lost anyway. So mm-hmm. I think I'd I like that you just accept all the different kind of, of subgenres and just put it in because it's all horror. Yeah, yeah that's, that's how I very much feel. Some people get very like, no. I've seen people be like, Jaws is not horror. And I'm like, there's oh, like God. a shark and it's like attacking people. Yeah, it's a monster <laughs> story, basically. It's a monster movie. I mean, again, if somebody out there is like, Jaws is not horror, that's okay. I'm not trying to push that on you. But like, I do feel... For me, I like the idea of having more things be horror than less, especially since people can be kind of mean to horror anyways. It's an outsider genre all on its own. So I'm always like, bring more into horror. That way people are like, I don't like horror. It's like, well, do you not like this, this, or this? Because yeah. those are all horror. So yeah, yeah, I love I love people who are like, I don't like horror. And I'm like, well, what do you like? And they're like, well, I love Stephen King. I love Dean Koontz. Uh, right. Walking yeah. Dead is awesome. It's like, whoa, wait. Silence of the Lambs is yeah. my favorite movie. Exactly. Exactly. And I've, I've, I've heard that too. Like, oh, Silence of the Lambs isn't horror. I'm like, mm, yeah, it is. But okay, that's fine. We'll, we'll, we'll that's you, what somebody yeah. has to feel. It's like, <laughs> and we'll, that helps you sleep at night. Exactly. We'll, exactly. It's like, get me through. Yeah, we'll let you be wrong. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Now, were you surprised when the HWA nominated your collection and her smile will untether the universe for a Grand Stoker Award? Yes, I, I was. I was very, very excited. I'm still excited about it. Sometimes I still go and double check and I'm like, yeah, that still happened because that was that was very exciting because that was my very first book. Like I hadn't had, you know, a standalone of, of my work up until that point. So for, for it to be nominated, I'd known of the Stokers since I was a teenager. So that was that was very exciting and a very big honor. I've said to people, though, then it feels like it's a it's something that you almost have to live up to if you get nominated for awards early on. I'm like, oh, I've got to, I've got to, you know, keep going. I've got to do good. I've got to earn that. <laughs> well, I, I think you are, but we'll get to that in a minute. Um, <laughs> some of the stories in uh, in uh, Untether the Universe are, are like mind blowing. Like I said, I'm only halfway through, and I'm like exactly at the halfway point. Um, but uh, but the Clawfoot Requiem. My God, that <laughs> the beginning of that story is just like, oh, my God, it's so strong and it's so dark. How did you come to write that story? Oh, I just I just remember seeing this image of this bathtub of blood and thinking about again about loss and and losing somebody you really love and having to live in the aftermath of something like that and how someone could do that and how, how sometimes when I think about loss, I also think about resilience and the resilience that we have as human beings and how we can get through things. But 
with that story, I wanted to kind of look at resilience and being able to move forward in a really terrifying way and how someone could be like, okay, I'm going to move forward from having lost my, my sister in this, in this terrible way to, to suicide and move forward in this very terrifying kind of grotesque way. And so that was, that was really where I started with that and this thought of like, what would that even be like? And going through the ideas of, how gross it actually is. It's kind of like more of a gross out story. I say, I'm like, oh, I don't really do gore, but literally there's an, an entire bathtub of blood that just decays in that story. So I guess that's pretty gory, right? <laughs> yeah, I would say that's probably the goriest thing I've read from you so far. And uh, But it, it, it packs a punch in, uh, in what it's supposed to convey. And well, that thank is you. that loss. Thank you. Like uh, that mm -hmm. beginning paragraph, though, I had to put the book down for a moment after reading like three or four paragraphs and I was just like, Whoa, what did I just read? <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting one because I remember when I first sent it out, I think it got rejected several times and I'm like, okay, maybe it just doesn't work as a story. I mean, I, I, I didn't, I didn't know it was one of the earliest stories I, I wrote to try to, you know, send out for publication. And I thought, you know, I'm, I like it, but maybe it's not working. And then I remember sending it to Lamplight, which I, I love Lamplight, and, and Jacob Haddon, the editor there, is, is amazing, and Catherine Grant is an editor there now as well, and they're, they're both incredible, and I just, I remember sending it to, to Jacob at the time, and he was like, yes, this is great, and I was like, okay, maybe this does work, and then, yeah, a few people have responded, and like you said today, even that opening paragraph of the first few paragraphs, and and then, that makes me happy. I'm glad. I'm glad that it, it still works for readers because you never know. Like I said, you send stuff out as a writer and you don't know what's going to work for people and what's not going to work. So it's always nice to hear about that it's effective. Yeah. Now, uh, The Man in the Ambry, uh, that story reminded me of uh, more older classical uh, ghost stories. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Although the, the one thing I like about your writing is that you, you have this ambiguity going on in a lot of your stories. Mm -hmm. And uh, The Man in the Ambry isn't any different you don't really know exactly what's going on like where did this uh this person come from <laughs> and but one one thing i like about ambiguity is is uh, that it's immersive for the reader it involves them mm -hmm. and uh, some readers mm -hmm. don't like mm -hmm. that though they want everything explained for them mm -hmm. uh, now considering a lot of yours that i've read as i just said hold that mystery or ambiguity i was wondering if you get any negative feedback regarding this once in a while, every once in a while, I'll see a reader say in, in, in a review of something to that effect. And yeah, I've talked to other authors about that. I, I, feel, I feel like the consensus and what I've heard from, from other people is that there are some people that like that, like you said, and then some people are like, no. And it, and it kind of is that place with, with weird fiction that can be that weird fiction you very often don't explain every single thing. And I think some people like to have things explained. So maybe that that element of the weird might not be quite for them, which is obviously fine, you know, if, if, if that's not, not your thing. And what's interesting is when I know when I was younger, I didn't like more ambiguous stories. I'm like, I want this explained. I want it explained. And then I just feel like my tastes have changed over time. And now I now I like having having that ambiguity and having those places where you're not quite sure and you either have to decide for yourself or sometimes I'll read something and I won't even decide. I'll be like, it could be this, it could be that. I'm okay with whatever it is because I, I liked that particular journey. And so I have gotten some feedback, but definitely nothing, 
nothing that, that jumps out at me as being as being anything more than just a difference in taste. Most of the time, it's like, ah, I would have liked to know a little bit more about that. And I always think like, yeah, you know, and I, I sometimes I almost want to reach out and be like, well, here's what I was thinking about it when I wrote it. And I'm like, no, don't do that. Don't ever respond to reviews. I know not to, but every once in a while, I'm like, well, I mean, I could tell you what I was thinking if you really want to know. <laughs> Uh, I, I find that am, ambiguity is really tough to get right, but uh, I think, honestly, you handle it uh, perfectly. Despite what you just said, I, I feel like the answers are all there. Uh, you just need mm. to uh, think about it, maybe even reread it. And uh, But the, mm. more you, the more you think about what's going on in your stories, the more unsettling it feels. Now, I was wondering, uh, <laughs> when you're writing, how do you figure out what information you're going to let the reader in on? And uh, and what do you let them try and figure out for themselves in order to achieve this? That's a great question. I, I really like that because I, I feel like it does shift with every story. And sometimes I will, it depends on my, on my, on this particular story in the draft, because some drafts, the initial one that I'll write, it will explain things more. And then I'm like, no, maybe dial that back a little bit. Maybe, maybe pull it back because it'll be more interesting that way. And then other times it's the opposite. I'll write a story and I'll be like, this might not make sense to people if I don't give them a little bit more. And, and so it, it feels kind of like balancing through different drafts as to figure out exactly, you know, where, where to, where to end up with that. I remember the man in the Ambry, one piece of ambiguity that, that I did take out early on was there's a cat in it. I feel like I can, I can talk about this because it's spoiler, spoiler for the man in the Ambry, but there's a cat in, in the man in the Ambry that disappears into this Ambry where this, this creature is living. And I remember being like, okay, I want to make sure that people know the cat's still like kind of in there a little bit later on down the road in the story, because it is a creature living in an Ambry. And I was scared that people might think that the creature ate the cat. I kept thinking of the show Alf. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, I don't want anyone to think that the creature ate the cat because that would be a very different story. Yeah. And so I, I remember, like, in a later draft, adding a detail that, like, the cat would have been, like, way past the age of a normal cat, but the cat was still in there, meaning there's something supernatural going on, and the cat is fine, everyone. Yeah. The cat is not a ghost cat. <laughs> it's not a ghost cat because the creature ate and the it, cat. It wasn't eaten. It was not eaten. <laughs> That would be such a different story, especially with the way the story ends. Ends, yeah, definitely. Um, so that was that was a piece of information. I'm going to be really, really specific with this information. The cat is fine. The cat is completely fine. <laughs> That's the title of our interview. <laughs> the cat, cat is, is fine. fine. <laughs> it's oh, good. That's, good. That's perfect. <laughs> Um, that question sort of leads into this question because while I was writing the first question there, I was thinking, you know, how many, how many drafts would you have to go through before you get, you get that, that feeling that this is right? Again, I feel like that, that very much depends on the story and it's almost a terrible question right now because I'm working on something right now that I'm very angry at. <laughs> and I, I, I was almost like worried coming to this interview that I'd like come into a kind of angry and you guys would be like, what is wrong with this? <laughs> and I'm like, no, I'm just angry at a story. It's not you guys. She was so angry. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of times I would say probably three or four drafts, three or four, really, you know, the first draft, I, I edit a lot as I go. So I try so that the first draft is, is relatively solid in terms of some of the details, but then I like to go through definitely a second time and often a third time. And again, depending on the story, 
a lot more than that. It really, you know, I'm trying to think like what, what stories I've had published that have gone through the most revisions. And I, I, I am almost hesitant to say this because then I feel bad for the stories that don't work the first time. But a lot of them, I would say probably only about three drafts and the ones that have taken six or seven drafts to get right are never quite right. So I'm trying to think of all the stories in the collection and I don't know that any of them took more than a handful of, of drafts. So maybe, maybe that means that it's taken that long. It's not working. Maybe, maybe this current story is just a jerk. It could just be a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Um, now, all the stories I've read by you so far, anyway, um, and I'm pretty sure it's like this for every story that you have, but they have this very original feel to them because you like to play with narrative and uh, with mm. your style. Um, how do you how do you approach each story? How do you keep it fresh? Thank you for saying that they're, they're keeping, I'm keeping them all fresh because that's always something that I... I worry about, especially when I do kind of approach them. You know, I've had stories that are questionnaire or there are songs that are playlists and, and things like that. And I always worry that it could almost become kind of like a, a gimmick. So it's always trying to make sure that whatever narrative device I'm using, it makes sense for that particular story. And so that that's one way to, that I approach it. It's like, does this work for this story or is this just something that that I think would be fun, which is okay too. But I like to think like, okay, if I think this would be a fun device to use, I at least need to wait till I know that the story is kind of reflective of whatever that device is, is doing on the page. And I like to try to challenge myself in terms of looking at things from a different angle or trying, trying to come up with something that pushes me outside of, of my comfort zone, because I think that that's, that's when I can do some of the best writing that, that, that I've ever done is when I, I force myself to be like, okay, what, what am I afraid of? And going back to that, that's something I often go back to as a horror writer. What are my fears and how can I, how can I explore that through, through a story? And the big thing for me is like a loss of identity. Again, loss and the loss of, of who you are. And that comes across in, in, a, lot of, in a lot of my fiction. Yeah. Um, now you grew up in a small town in Ohio. Mm-hmm. Um, the characters, though, in Rust Maiden, uh, the Rust Maidens, uh, they're a group of young women who grew up in uh, the decaying industrial part of Cleveland, uh, just part mm-hmm. of the Rust Belt. Now, was Cleveland yes. close to where you grew up, and are there any similarities between your own childhood and that of Phoebe Shaw's? I grew up about about a 90 minute drive from from Cleveland and we did go there we go we went there a fair number of times when when I was young so I, I definitely knew the city and I've kind of seen a change and then I went to college in Cleveland at Case Western Reserve which is actually talked about a little bit in in the book uh, not a lot but it's kind of like a nod to 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 my college and uh there, there definitely are. There are definitely similarities. I feel like growing up in the Rust Belt that that can that can just kind of naturally happen, and a lot of a lot of people that I've known, you know, uh, family members and friends, dads have worked in in steel mills. So it's it's like I there were still some of them open when I was growing up, and I've seen them you know slowly close over the years, and and so that's kind of been like an ongoing thing, even though the book takes place in 1980. It's definitely been kind of a very slow, you know, closing of a lot of these places and, and not a lot to replace it in certain areas. You know, not a lot of new jobs and, and how, how things do decay very much in some of these, these 
areas and you know in Cleveland it's very very urban area and and but the you know where I grew up wasn't as urban and yet there were a lot of people that still worked in other other factories and steel mills that have closed so it's definitely something that's affected people kind of across the board and in all different in all different areas it's not just a problem in the city or or more kind of rural areas it's sort of all over so I feel like that that's something that definitely I, I saw growing up very cool now there is so much at least this this novel rust maidens really comes off as uh as very very true um there's so much symbolism yeah. in it too especially with what happens to the rust maidens um i truly think honestly that this book would do really well being taught in high schools because there's a lot of history here there's a lot of symbolism uh but i really like the yeah. historical aspects too of unions and industrial battles that we saw taking place in the you know the 70s and the 80s uh, there's yeah. there's just so much happening in this book. It seems like it should be like five six hundred pages, <laughs> but I, I have to wonder what what was the research like for this one. I actually love researching, so that was like a really really fun part of the book. Even though some of the research again is is so much about things that 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 hurt so many people, but I also tried to bring out things that were like looking at the food of the time, looking at old flyers from for from like. Sears or J.C. Penney, and and really trying to kind of immerse myself in some of the things that weren't the real sad parts or the parts where it's like, hey, look, the '70s were when we really poisoned the environment, and we're really paying for that still now, because that that also plays into it and how much you know the the water was poisoned and Lake Erie would catch on. I'm sorry, the Cuyahoga River would catch on fire because that was something my dad was like, remember, it was not technically Lake Erie, it was the river. I'm like, yes, it's the Burning River. That's right. So, but I always, I usually always say Lake Erie because it's literally all right there but mm-hmm. it is the river that you can catch on fire and uh yeah and so i really i liked the researching part of it because it, it did give me a chance to kind of immerse myself in in that time and and really really look at how things have changed and how things are, are very much the same and i remember literally i was still researching just like little details here and there right up until the very last draft because if i could if i could get something else to put in there like that was that was so that was so much fun. So, and uh, some of the, some of the details are very uh, very specific because, like, there's even baseball schedules. I like even went as far as to look up like the Cleveland Indian baseball schedule to to make sure that all of those those details were exactly right as to which which games were being lost or played wherever the the Indians the Cleveland Indians lost a lot that year, as I think they are very often want to do. So it's a typical season. <laughs> but yeah, so it was a lot of very specific things and knowing exactly what was going on on that day in, in history and trying to at least have that much of it based in reality. Uh, that was like one one of my favorite things about this book is that every time I went to go read it, I was I was suddenly in Cleveland. And uh, not not, ah. every, not every author can, can accomplish this. I mean, I could almost smell the streets and, you know, uh, see what everything looked like. It was just beautifully written. My God. Now, there's also some really good scary scenes. Like, uh, I don't think this is a spoiler because I'm not going too deep here about what happens. But th- there's a there's a scene where our hero gets stuck in a mansion, and it's just so very creepy. How do you how do you create scenes that will actually scare the reader? 
I, I, oh, that's, that's a hard one because I feel like one, you don't know what's going to scare every individual reader and what will scare one person won't necessarily scare another. So one, I'm just very glad that you found that particular scene <laughs> scary because that, that's kind of one of the centerpiece kind of scare moments in, in the book. That scene in particular, and again, I don't want to give too much away because that book's still relatively new. I really wanted to create it not only was the environment scary it was also what was going on and there was a very much an emotional investment of of the characters wanting to go in there so it's not just not that there's anything wrong with with the story that you just go into the haunted house but if you're going into the haunted house because somebody you care about is in there or because you have to you you know you have to get somebody out or there's something you know there's some reason and that there's that emotional investment on top of it i for me as a reader or or you know a viewer of films that will get me more invested. That will make it so it's more terrifying because the stakes are higher. It's not just you're randomly wandering into a haunted house. It's that there's a reason. You can't avoid it, not if not if you want to do right by somebody you care about or yourself or, you know, whatever the these particular investment is in that in that situation. So that is one thing I, I think of. And then just what, what scares me, you know, the, the things that, that crawl around in the dark and, you know, the shadows and, you know, what's out there that we can't quite explain. Even if, even if we could turn on the lights and look right at it, you might not be able to explain it. But in particular, when it's, when it's shadowy and, and you can't quite reach it or figure out what it is. So that, that's what I often look at when I'm, I'm trying, to, trying to create a scene that, 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 that will hopefully scare readers. Well, it worked for me, that's for sure. Now, I mentioned Black Static Magazine earlier. Um, with them, you published the short story, Songs to Help You Cope When Your Mom Won't Stop Haunting You and Your Friends. Uh, now, this is uh, related to the Rust Maidens. Uh, which story came first, uh, this one or, or the novel? The The short story definitely did. So... I was actually in, I was actually in the middle of writing my novella Pretty Mary's All in a Row and I had gotten stuck kind of halfway through and I just wanted to take a break from it so I could go back into it and I actually was like okay I'm gonna go try to write a short story just to let myself kind of decompress and then I ended up getting lost in research for a few days hmm. on songs to help you cope which is also set in Cleveland in 1980 it's actually the exact same year and everything and it and I just realized how much it was, I was really enjoying researching Cleveland and I was learning a lot of things. And, and it just was this time period that that story's a little less kind of typically scary. It's much more of a dark fantasy story. It's just about a girl coping with this ghost of her mother that will not go away and, and trying, trying to be like, you know, dealing with that along with everything else that goes with being, being a teenager. And I thought this, this setting is so was was so interesting to me again growing up in the rust belt and i thought it would be really fun to do something else with it and at the same time i had been wanting to write a body horror novel that would have you know these transformations of these girls and i couldn't figure out what to do with it that i hadn't already done or hadn't already seen done with body horror because a lot has been done with body horror and a lot of great stuff has been and i didn't want to just kind of retread the same thing and i thought you know, I could take body horror and actually take the environment of Cleveland during that era and have it be that decay, the the broken glass, the, the rusted metal, the the poisoned water, and you know incorporate that into the body transformations and then be able to use some of the things that I had researched for songs to help you cope. And that's that's basically you know how it happened. And then I, after I was done with that short story, I went back and I was completely ready to finish 
writing uh, Pretty Mary's all in a row. So that worked out. And then I got the novel out of it. So that short story ended up really being good. Basically, I got two, uh, two books out of that one short story. So awesome. I feel like I should send it a fruitcake or something. Thank you, story. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Here's a fruitcake. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I, I really love the song choices uh, that you put between the uh, story breaks in that one. Uh, it, are those the type of songs you listen to? And, and you mentioned playlists um, earlier, mm. Spotify playlists, I think you said. Uh, do you listen to music while writing? I do listen to music while writing. I don't really listen to Spotify very much. I don't know that I said that, but I, I it was, it's actually funny you bring it up because somebody was just being like, you should be on Spotify. And I'm like, I don't think that I am, but I should be. This is the second time it's a sign. I should be on Spotify. That's what, that's what the universe is telling me. But I do. I do listen to a lot of music while writing, and it really changes depending on the project. When I was writing The Rust Maidens, it was, it was a lot of Bob Seger and Tom Petty because that was mentioned. They were mentioned in, mm-hmm. the, in the actual uh, novel. And yes, the the songs from Songs to Help You Cope, that playlist, there's David Bowie in there. There's Pink Floyd. I'm trying to think. There's Bruce Springsteen, which what I love about including Bruce Springsteen is what the mother says about Bruce Springsteen in, in the story is that like she's angry because he says something about in a song about, you know, you're a beauty, but you're not a beauty, but hey, you're all right or something. And and my mom always used to get mad at that line, just like the mom in the story. So that was totally like a nod to my mom actually being like, what the heck, Bruce Springsteen? She used to get mad when we were driving and we would hear that song. So, <laughs> so that's, that's, that's very much a nod to that. Although I do actually like Bruce Springsteen. I do. I like Even that almost feels stuff. good. I like his older stuff. Yes. Yeah. Now, you exactly. Mean, you, I, I like stuff. Yeah. You also mentioned uh, uh, in in terms with songs to help you cope um, that it helped you write uh, Pretty Mary's All in a Row. Uh, this is a book mm-hmm. I, I haven't uh, read just yet, but I, I want to as soon as I possibly can. Can you tell us what it's about? It is about the Marys of folklore. So Resurrection Mary, Bloody Mary, Mary Mary Quite Contrary, Mary Lloyd, who is from, uh, who's like basically in the mythology or the folklore, a wassailing tradition in which people carry around this horse skull. Although in the story, she carries around the horse skull. And then Mary Mack, who's a, from a nursery rhyme. So it's these five Marys, and they're all from like folklore or nursery rhymes, and they all live together in a house, and they don't know who they are, and they're trying to sort of unravel this, this idea of where do they come from. And, and they, they're also, it's, it's more dark fantasy than I would say outright horror, but there, is, there are some really, I think, you know, fun scare scenes. I, I was just saying to somebody recently, I'm like, that's like more whimsical horror. I feel like there's definitely horror in Pretty Mary's All on a Row, but it's sort of like a little bit more whimsical horror. But it, I think people who like folklore, I think will enjoy it. And I, I like the idea of, as I was writing it, looking at how often the name Mary is used in folklore and, and, and in, in these kind of urban legends. You know, Resurrection Mary, you know, it's, uh, it's one that a lot of people know. And Bloody Mary, you know, saying her name in the, in the mirror and everything. So I thought it would be fun to kind of bring them all together and, and see what would see what would happen. <laughs> yeah, you know, you, I, I never thought of that myself until you were just talking about that. And I was like, wow, Mary is used an awful lot. <laughs> I wonder if it's because of its, uh, uh, you know, religious sort of uh, relations. Probably. 
That, I mean, that's that's something that, you know, because my, my husband's really into folklore, and that's something he and I have, have talked about. But also Jack is used a lot for, for guys. There's a lot of, you know, Jack and Jill and Jack and the Beanstalk. And originally I wanted to actually have a story that would incorporate both the Marys and the Jacks. And then I'm like, you know, I actually think that might be a little too much of, like, bringing too much together. But maybe someday I'll also look at the, the Jacks of folklore and, and fairy tales, because there's a lot of them, too. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Now um... you have to. We're going to hold you to that. <laughs> <laughs> don't hold me to it. No. No, don't do that, please. <laughs> Every year I'm going to bug you. <laughs> You're going to get that. That's the that Jack message. story coming. <laughs> and then if you write it, you'll get a fruitcake. There we go. There we go. There we go. <laughs> Does anyone actually like fruitcake? That's always, a, that's yes. always a thing. Yes. I, you do, Michael? <laughs> I do, but right. I... Oh, good for you! Yay! I, I have to say, I, I'm sorry to tell my own story in the middle of, of your stories, no but the first it. and only time I had it was in a book group when we read that Truman Capote Christmas, um, the fruitcake story that he wrote, and, and the guy heading the, the group brought in fruitcake for us, and it was delicious! <laughs> that is awesome. I didn't even know there was a Truman Capote fruitcake story. That's, yeah, that's like a children's story about coming together on Christmas and making a fruitcake. It's bizarre. Yeah, that sounds great. I was going to say, the thing I think of with fruitcakes is there's a great old Edward Gorey picture <gasps> of people throwing fruitcakes into this, like, giant hole. Like, it's like the, the something like the idea of the annual, you know, disposal of the fruitcakes that everybody yeah. at Christmas is just throwing them into, like this like chasm in the ground. So I was thinking that, but I love that there's a Truman Capote story. I'm going to have to look that up. I'm actually really excited now. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. I'm going to have to look that up too. That's, that's pretty wild. Oh, but you know, right now it's February and uh, you know what that means. It's uh it's women in horror month. Now, uh, now I know I've been following you for a couple of weeks now because uh, you know, I've become, I've become quite addicted to your writing and uh <laughs> And I, so I know you've been writing a series about uh, women horror writers on your blog, and it, it's called Fear yeah. and the Feminine. Now, uh, you interview some women on this, and I think you've done some other things. Can you tell us a little more about what this project is? Really, I think this is the third year I've I've done it. And I think the Fear and the Feminine was just what I called last week's uh uh, blog. I don't even know if that's really what I've been calling the series. And now, now you make me want to call the series that because that actually does that, that. That's pretty good. That'd be a good series name for it. It is. But yeah. I think it's just <laughs> I, I gave it for for last week because I always try to give them some kind of like alliterative name. I love alliteration way too much. But anyway, so <laughs> I think this is the third year that I've done a wow. Women in Horror Month roundtable awesome. that I I just like you know, look and see who's publishing things out there and, and, you know, some people that I, some female authors that I know and just get them together and kind of just take stock of, of where they're going, what they're, what they're seeing for horror, you know, what they're working on. I, I love to ask them, you know, who are some female writers that, that, that you're reading right now and, and just try to get the word out there about, about different authors. And maybe even, I don't know, because of something I always love every year is finding, finding authors that, that I, I didn't know or female artists or, 
you know, any any kind of, of artistic medium and, and just really trying to get the word out there again. That's what I feel for me is what Women in Horror Month is about. So many of us say the same thing year after year that we look forward to a point where we don't need Women in Horror Month, that that's just something that will be taken for granted at some point. But as of right now, it, it's nice. I feel like it's a good signal boost for a lot of a lot of us and just a good opportunity to, to again, find different creators. Yeah, your uh, uh, your one interview there, I think it was part one, uh, introduced yes. me to a couple of new writers uh, like uh, Christina Singh. Uh, her her work yes. of poetry, a collection of nightmares. Mm -hmm. I was reading that, and oh mm -hmm. my god, that's really good stuff. And uh, yeah. there, there was yeah. one more. I can't remember. Uh, I, I can't find it on my uh, on my Kindle <laughs> here, but I know I got another one. Uh, but mm. yeah, so. Um, you know, in, in all honesty, I think it's uh, it's horror and science fiction where women writers are mostly, uh, you know, they're sort of dismissed as serious writers. Why do you think it's this way, in your opinion? I, you know, I don't know that it's only horror and science fiction. I know what you're saying. I definitely, I definitely know what you're saying, but... I don't know. I, I think some places that maybe because they had been male dominated for so long that, that maybe that's that's why there's some resistance, though. I do feel like some of that is changing, especially in short fiction. I feel like so many short fiction markets in, in speculative fiction, so definitely science fiction and horror, have really, really, you know, opened up in, in the last few years and really actively encouraging and inviting women to submit. And I think that that's helped a lot. So I think maybe it was just the, the, you know, the way it was and it was very old fashioned for a long time. That's yeah. being, again, diplomatic. That's being very diplomatic. But <laughs> I, I do think that that's shifting to a, to a large degree and not as fast as obviously we would like for it to. But I still think that there's so many editors out there that really are actively seeking diversity, you know, across the board. And that's that's great. That's great to see. So I it can it can get discouraging sometimes. But I do try to focus on, you know, the people who are out there really doing great work and really helping to to get voices out there that, you know, 10 years ago would not have have been heard. And again, I also think that in some ways the Internet and social media have equalized things a little bit because, you know, now now female authors have the opportunity to try to get more visibility in a way that when everybody was just basically mailing in submissions, you don't know how many women were submitting even, you know, 20 years ago to horror and science fiction markets. It may have been way more than what a lot of places, you know, ever said. Now you can kind of see more of the visibility and being like, hey, we are out here. And, and it is a way of being able to get our voices heard a little bit more than maybe, you know, 20 years ago. Yeah, for sure. Um, uh, you, you speak of uh, the Internet being uh, or having an influence and maybe equalizing uh, mm -hmm. the sexes uh, in these genres. Um, that's true for sure, but I don't think it's enough yet because I also have a, okay. a, I have a, a YouTube channel um, for what we like to call BookTube. I don't know if you ever heard of it. Um, okay, yeah. But uh, so I, you know, often I talk about books and I, I watch a lot. I watch way too many pe people on YouTube talking about books. It's like, it's a problem really. <laughs> but I, I don't know how many times I've come across, it's been a few times at least where somebody was reading and I, I brought this question up to another guest, but you made me think of it again uh, when you were talking about that. Um, but uh, 
I've seen a few videos where somebody's read a book by a, a woman horror writer and they're like, oh, you know, I didn't know that women write horror. Oh, wow. And I'm like, it, I'm like, yeah, really? I, you yeah. know, I've been reading for, I don't know, a long time and I've always read female horror writers and, uh, yeah. and whatnot. Yeah. But there's people out there who don't know. And yeah, and that just yeah. surprises me every time. So this really does lead into my, my next question. Um, what do you think that everyone who is aware of this, <laughs> what do you think we can do to help educate readers that there are women who not only write horror, but they, you know, they write it well, very well. It, that's such a difficult question because I know that there's so many different different answers to that. Again, it, it's it's encouraging markets and reading from from magazines that publish women and and you know that that helps get voices out there. It's it's signal boosting and and sharing. It's when somebody says, "I don't know any female horror writers," <laughs> which again, I'm I'm with you on that. That I'm like, how 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 do you not know this after after all this time? But <laughs> again trying especially i do see people that really are asking for suggestions yeah. and even though i know it it can be very surprising and sometimes be like how do you not know this not being not just going on the attack as much as sometimes i know that that's that's even my my instinct it's, it's instead to, again keep signal boosting keep educating and being like yeah there are definitely women writers out there yeah yeah you know i i don't I don't want to make it sound like I, I want to attack these people who who are unaware. It's it's not their fault, and and that's where I think where the problem is is we got to find out I think where the problem lies and try to fix that. Yeah, yes, I agree because I think I I see people sometimes, and I understand the instinct to want to be like, how do you not know? But I never do that <laughs> because I agree with you. I think that there's an underlying problem that there's a much bigger problem in the system that, that anybody is not aware so again just continuing to try to, to try to unpack this and understand where we can continue to signal boost and continue to educate and just keep getting the word out there just i do think women in hormones yeah. have helped and i i do believe that it's helped i know some people are like i don't feel like it's helped as much as it could and i understand that and i'm i that's something i really try when i do my round table is i don't just want to get people who i know agree with me on things i love to have people who are like listen i don't think women in our month has done nearly as much as maybe i think that it has because i want to hear all these experiences that female authors are having because i think that that's important too but i do think that in some ways you know just getting getting the word out there and 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 Again, supporting publications that do publish women and, and again, you know, diversity across the board because it's, yeah. right now it's Women in Horror Month, but there's, there's, you know, we should all be trying our best to, to read authors that are not just, you know, like us, that all of us should be, you know, wanting to, to read more, more diverse stories and really continuing to encourage publications that are invested in diversity and just keep keep going and keep supporting supporting each other there's a lot of support there's a lot of support in this community not sometimes sometimes less than others but i do think that there's a lot of supportive people in in, in the writing community and and i think that, that that can help a lot in terms of just people who are supporting each other and getting the word out do you find do you find a lot of uh, pushback from people who maybe don't want there to be uh, an equal 
or inequality between men and women? I haven't, per I mean, not personally on me. I've seen a lot of it just in general, you know, kind of around here and there. And sometimes it's not as overt as maybe I think it would have been five or 10 years ago, but it's definitely there. And it's, you know, it's, it's in the way that the women can be treated. I haven't experienced a lot personally. I, I Occasionally things will happen and, and, you know, and you just keep going. But I, I, I've definitely had friends and I've definitely seen other, other female writers deal with some things that have been very, very unfair. And so there's definitely some of that pushback out there, without a doubt. Which Again, I, I've tried as much as I can to, to kind of surround myself with, with editors that I know are supportive of of diversity again like right now i'm thinking of you know nightmare and Lightspeed. the editors there you know wendy wagner and and john joseph adams and yeah. and how how much they've really really been been devoted to diversity and how that's really been helpful and i know they've gotten pushback i i've seen them talk about the pushback they've gotten from from having some some you know just having diverse a diverse publication and so that's definitely an issue so I've definitely seen that, but personally, not as much, but I, I'm, I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's out there. I've, I've had a couple of reviews that have been, been like, okay, you didn't like this because it was a, it was a female centric story. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not okay, but I'm not going to, again, I'm not going to argue with reviewers. That's your prerogative to say those things. So I'm going to walk away now. <laughs> yeah. I was, uh, I was talking to Christopher Golden for a different podcast mm -hmm. And, uh, mm -hmm. and he was talking about some of the pushback he's got, cause you know, as you probably know, he's very into, uh, diverse, uh, putting out anthologies mm -hmm. and whatnot yeah. with a, a diversity. And, uh, mm -hmm. and he was saying that, uh, that he's experienced some pushback, people afraid that, you know, the typical white males afraid that, um, that, that they're trying, people like him are trying to take away uh, you know, them getting published. And he was like, it's, it's, yeah. it has nothing to do about that because what we're doing right here and now is we're finding these authors who never had a voice before. And, uh, and he's like, if you want to be in an anthology that I'm editing, just write a good story. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I, it's it's surprising to me that 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 people are that are that afraid of of just having more voices because that's actually better for everybody. It really is because it's just going to open up the genre to more people, and then we'll have more fans, and then there will be more of a, a a desire to have more anthologies and more books, and so it'll actually be better for everybody. But some people don't see it that way. Yeah, which is unfortunate. I think honestly, it's very unfortunate. Now, um, what advice would you give uh, any young woman writers who are just starting out? Just keep going, keep going, keep do, keep writing your best work, keep honing your craft, realize that things will happen that, that will be upsetting, you know, do your best to, to find supportive people, you know, build a network that, that are, that have people who will support you in, in what you're doing and that'll help get you through and find those publications that that are and those editors that are really devoted to to what they say that they're devoted to, you know, that they are looking for diversity and they they do want your voice. So I think that's it. Just keep writing, you know, find find your find your network of people that, that will support you and that you can support and you know look for those editors that are 
that are invested in this. Excellent. I I only have two more questions for you, and I promise we'll let you go. <laughs> <laughs> now, the first one is, um, is there anything that you have coming out shortly that uh, readers can look forward to? Oh, what do I have coming out? Got some short stories coming out. I have a uh, have a short story coming out in a Flame Tree uh, Press anthology. So that's like the Haunted House anthology that will be coming out. Cool. And it'll be out, I think, in March. I just had a story uh, appear in Pantheon's Gorgon Stories of Emergence. So that just came out like less than a week ago. And those are the main things. I've got some other short stories that are coming out. I'm not sure when they're coming out, so I don't want to announce those, those yet. But definitely some short fiction. This year is mostly going to be short fiction from me. And hopefully we're working on a novel at some point. Again, someday. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Once I want to get this, uh, current, this current story into shape. So, the one that's making me angry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and where can readers find you online if they uh, if they have any questions or are perhaps looking for advice? Uh, I'm pretty active on my website. I have a blog, like we said. I, I do interviews there and and other and other type of publishing news. So that's GwendolynKeist.com. And then I'm also at Facebook, so Facebook.com/slash/GwendolynKeist and Twitter, so Twitter dot com slash Gwendolyn Kest. So that's, I'm pretty active on both Facebook and Twitter. So you can find me there hanging around when I should be writing. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I, I think thought. we all do that. We're supposed to be creating things. Uh, we're there. We are on Twitter or Facebook and wasting time. <laughs> <laughs> it's part of the thinking process. I'm thinking. Yes. You're, you're letting things percolate. Yes. <laughs> all right. Exactly. <laughs> well, well, thank you so much, Gwendolyn, for coming on the show. I really, I really had a lot of fun talking with you. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Right. So much fun. <laughs> talking about fruitcake. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. Pain has a face. Allow me to show it to you. chewing good <laughs> all right so raw. i don't have many notes because i just get so involved with with the story so yeah I, you know what i didn't take any oh, notes that's... i wrote notes after i watched the movie yeah and uh you know that's kind of rare for me i usually jot down notes while i'm watching but uh so raw it came out in, i believe in 19 or sorry 2017 and uh it was directed by julia Ducarno. I'm probably butchering that name and I apologize. And uh, Julia also wrote the screenplay. It starts, it starts, it stars uh, Garance Marielle. She plays Justine, the main protagonist. Ella Rumpf as her sister, Alexia. And uh, Rabba Knight Aufella. He plays Adrian. 
Now, the synopsis for this film is Justine is a first-year veterinary student. Her elder sister is studying the same course at the university. Justine was raised as a strict vegetarian, or you could actually say vegan, maybe. But as part of the hazing rituals, she is forced to eat some meat and raw at that. Initially, this has adverse effects, but she soon, she soon develops a craving for meat, particularly human flesh. <laughs> All right, so you said you saw this when it first came out, when it was first released, right? Yes. Yeah. And it must have been, it must have been really, oh yeah, 2017. Yeah, we're in 2019. I was going to say, it must have been really the beginning of 2017 because I feel like I watched this two years ago. <laughs> that was two years ago. Uh, yeah, I had heard about this on the, on the circuit, you know, looking for, I'm always looking for disturbing movies and, and disturbing fiction. And this came up as a, a recommendation and boy, did it ever fit the bill. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, speaking of how nasty it is, I, I heard the same thing. I thought it was going to be really, really, really fucking brutal. But uh, I, I found that, it, yeah, it had it, it had its gross-out parts. Um, uh, but it, it, it and on, honestly, it nearly made me gag at one point, too. The finger scene actually had me kind of, like, ready to gag. <laughs> and the hair scene. Uh, I don't know why, but... The uh, hair scene. <laughs> but it wasn't as bad for me as to say necromantic was. Remember that movie? Oh yes, that My movie favorite director. That movie had me gagging at like literally. I was like, oh. <laughs> well, there's a there's a difference between those two. Where uh, what's his name? Jorg Butgerich, uh, that director. I don't have the name in front of me. I'm just I'm trying to remember. Um. You know he do, he goes for the for the gross out. It's very visually gross, but yeah. but raw for all the all the scenes. I mean, it does show gross stuff. It's it's quieter, and it's as much psychological as it is a gross out, and that is what really really got to me because it's kind of pervasive. Kind of like it's that earwig that rubs against your brain and, and makes you susceptible. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, speaking of necromantic, I think there may have been, and I could be wrong, but the scene was just so weird. I, I couldn't think of anything else but necromantic. I think there is a nod to necromantic in the uh, one of the parties in Raw. There, there's The camera sort of slowly moving through the crowd, and you see this woman licking uh, some dude's eyeball. And yeah. they focus on that for way too long. I couldn't look at that. I was like, oh, stop that. Stop. <laughs> and uh, But, you know, there's that, that scene in Necromantic where she's sucking on, on the, the dead corpse's eyeball. And I, I thought maybe that was a, a reference. That could be. That could be. I mean, this is, you know, somebody that, that writes and directs Raw, I'm sure she has is uh, well-versed in other and other kind of extreme horror things. I'll yeah. tell you one thing about Raw. Um, I am so glad that I did not go to French college because the <laughs> hazing, yeah. that is like terrorism. The first time I watched that movie, I really did think that terrorists had stormed the college and were dragging the students out. I, that is, that's just beyond what I've ever seen. 
You know what? I thought the same thing. I didn't think terrorists. I thought like a bunch of dudes wearing balaclavas were gonna like butcher, start butchering everyone or something. Um, because they, you're right. They they rush in. They like throw everyone's mattresses out the window. I'm like, what the you fuck is the going hell, on? Man? I, I, you know, in all honesty, I don't know if they do that there. They probably do because you know you're talking about kids and university. But it, it seemed a little over the top to me. It seemed a little extreme. <laughs> it seems a lot extreme, but you know, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, that that would be something interesting to find out is how exaggerated was that? I mean, do, you know, French hazing rituals, do they kind of, I mean, the French go kind of hardcore in everything they do. So, yeah, that's true. I don't know. And, uh, yeah, the French are well known for, uh, like, they've done a lot of extreme horror movies. In fact, I think you could honestly say that they own uh, extreme extremism in film would would you agree to that um was martyrs french martyrs is french yeah yes. they, right yeah yeah yes then i i completely agree they yeah there was the you know the in the 90s there was j horror and and everything coming out of mainly japan um which was extraordinary but yeah the french the, the french do their extreme horror um with passion oh yes they certainly do and they they do not hold back um this movie it certainly has its uh moments like the the finger licking goodness scene as i like to call it actually almost had me gagging it didn't but how about we go to get into uh what the story is about a little bit uh, um it's 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 actually very straightforward um uh this girl justine she goes to school uh, she's she's leaving her uh, family uh, for the first time ever to go to university. She's going to become a, a veterinarian. Seems to be a family trait uh, of them being veterinarians or something. It certainly does. Because the sister's Sister. there too. I don't know what the mother did or the father, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it's hard to tell. <laughs> and, I, you know, I thought that was odd considering the ending. I'm not going to spoil it, but the ending sort of suggests something. And it makes you wonder, well, if they're all veterinarians, then why the fuck are they veterinarians? I know, right? Or, may or maybe because that is convenient for their appetites. Yeah. Let's say. Maybe. And uh, so. Because there is the scene with quickly the dog after he died, there's that really nice shot. We assume that it's, it's Justine's point of view, but. You know, they just show him there on the table, and it's suggestive of of that, hunger. That's very true. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I didn't think of that, but yeah, now that you you mention it, that makes sense. But uh, so in school, as we were just talking about the hazing, that's some pretty crazy hazing that's going on, and they're also forced to eat some raw meat. I believe it was like a a chicken kidney or something, and it was uh, a rabbit kidney. Oh, and, and that was yes. the least of it. You know, like, honestly, I would rather just have eaten the thing rather than getting doused with blood and yeah. having to, like, they apparently not be able to shower for a couple weeks and throw my damn bed out the window. Yeah. What is that? Jeez, I like I'll, the... I'll eat the damn thing, but God. Don't do the rest. <laughs> Jesus. 
I'd be like the grumpy guy. Like, what the fuck are you doing that for? Jesus. Oh, totally. Yeah. I'll eat totally. the kidney. But leave my bed alone. Bed's off limits. Yeah. And but let I, me shower. Uh-uh. <laughs> All the rash scene. That yes. is, you know, it's it's... The attention to detail in this movie and all the different ways that Justine is uncomfortable and changing mm-hmm. is very graphic. And and again, it's very psychological. You know, it, yeah. it's just this movie really plays well between the psychological and the physical, just making you uncomfortable on whichever level. And of course, the music and, you know, um, it's like every level that yeah. you can in this hour and a half makes you uncomfortable. Yeah, that soundtrack was just brilliant, I thought. Very horror movie. I, I looked that up, the uh, the mirror scene. That that song is called Bitchier Than Any Bitches. <laughs> and it's recorded by twins, Kinsey and Antha. And their first album was called Sex Tape, released in 2013, featuring, quote, songs about cocaine, sodomy... And cannibalism. So oh. they're they're like really popular, I guess, actually, in in certain uh, sects. That was, that was the uh, the French rapping, right? Yes. Yeah, that yes. was very dark. Those were very dark lyrics. Very dark. Yes. It, it was almost like horror rap because horror rap is a thing. And uh, is it? Oh yeah. Oh, it is. Cool. And, well, this uh, is definitely in that genre. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, Justine, she eats the kidney, and that sort of uh, pushes her into this change. And as you were saying, it's psychological, so I'm pretty sure that it's all the changes that are going on in her life, too. Cause she's not used to any of this. She's kind of lived a no. secluded life, right? And suddenly everything's yeah. changing on her, and she's changing, too. And I thought this movie was kind of a brilliant little uh, metaphor for that of uh, what it's like to go from one chapter of your life and in, into another when you're not expecting, you know, what's to come at all. And, uh, and her transformation from childhood into adulthood is, uh, it's sort of represented with, uh, with cannibalism. <laughs> yeah, that is so true. Yeah. You know, it was, it was smart to do the leaving, you know, going to college. And that is such a time of change for, for young people going to adulthood, because this could have been set in a, in a number of ways at various ages, but that was like, that was a real brilliant move. Yeah. It was, uh, it's basically a coming of age story, I guess, but a very dark one. And, uh, it's certain there's, there's a, that first beginning scene. I absolutely loved. You get that wide view of, uh, that, that road that's leading up to the school, I think. And, uh, and, and that car gets into an accident and you realize that there's a person there. Now I have a question about this because you see that scene happen again. I didn't understand exactly what happened because you have the two sisters waiting for a car to come along. And then the older sister jumps out in front of it and, uh, you don't see anything happen. You just, you're looking at Justine, uh, you're looking at her reaction to what happens. Did the older sister, did she get hit by the car too? Because if she did, that brings up a whole other uh, dimension of what this film is about. No, no. I think that, I don't know if the sister, the older sister was taught this or not, but the older sister definitely taught 
the younger sister how to make a car get into an accident and then you kind of have a free meal because of the injuries. I'm, I'm assuming that the first scene is actually the last scene of the movie. Yeah, that could be, yeah. Yeah. I love how it's shot, though. Just that wide view. Nothing moves except for what's happening on the screen. There's no... Uh, camera changes or whatever. It's just this wide view of a street, yeah. a car getting into an accident. And it's just, uh, it's just beautiful, and yet something terrible is happening. That's that's what I'm always always calling the foreign sensibility is that patience with the camera to just set it and let a scene, you know, unfold. Yeah. All right. Movies like North by Northwest did that with with the plane, and there's that beautiful opening shot of of capote where the they show that farmland that that wide shot when when capote and, and harper lee are going to meet them and it's just you know the car just slowly creeps by no cutting no no anything yeah. i i love that just steady you know let it play out it's very it's very different style because most movies especially hollywood you know blockbuster films they have a lot of edits, a lot of uh, camera changes. It's, it's an, cut everything. Yeah, they do that to keep your eyes on the screen because every time that happens, your eyes automatically look. So there's a big change, right? And uh, these films, these smaller films, don't do that necessarily. They expect you to be a little more intelligent and to to join in and sit down, keep your eyes on the TV, and pay the fuck attention. <laughs> yes. I love that. All right, so uh, what are your final thoughts on this? This is just this is almost a perfect movie, I think. Um, and again, I'll say it. I'll say it for the third time. It's the balance between the gore and the psychological terror of what's going on. It's very smart, and I mean, this is an easy five stars for me. This is the kind of movie that that I like. This is what I want to see. When when I'm in the mood for a horror movie, yeah, I uh, I, I love this film too. Um, there's one thing actually I forgot to mention is that why why did that scene with the finger make me want to gag? Because if it was something else, Fuse, she was like mowing or uh, chowing down on a on a dead dog or something. It w- unless it was the dog's intestines and it was very vivid, I wouldn't have had the same reaction. So. I, I was wondering, is there something in us that is like complete, like instinctual? I'm talking about something instinct- instinctual that's set in us that we cannot uh, apprehend cannibalism. Is is there an instinct about that with us? Do you think? I think that that scene awoke a secret desire within you, and that's why you felt uncomfortable. <laughs> I want to eat some flesh. That's what I. Th- yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes, that made you uncomfortable is because subconsciously you realize that that's what you want. Yeah, you know, honestly, that's my answer. <laughs> yeah, honestly, I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's a good theory and all, but but no, I was repulsed. <laughs> Just like in necromantic. Actually, that. Yeah, um, um, that's a much longer discussion. To be to be honest, I think about I think about things like that a lot. With any kind of paraphilia, um, is it like, and we'll take cannibalism as an example. I, I think that there's like one or two 
options. It's either that the urge to be be a cannibal, like cannibalism is an extra urge that some people have, or it's something missing inside someone, which would suggest that like some kind of survivalist urge to, you know, you'll do whatever you, you can, you, you, you'll cannibalize whatever, but that's blocked. The signal is blocked. So, so it's either because you have an extra urge or because, because some little mental block is gone, um, which I guess actually doesn't answer your question exactly, but I'll tell you what my, it does do. It, it kind of makes me afraid of you. <laughs> I'm just joking. Ah! <laughs> don't oh, don't get don't get stuck in a deserted island with Michael. <laughs> well, now you're never going to go to a horror convention with me. <laughs> well, as long as we don't go hungry, we should be fine. <laughs> I brought a snack. <laughs> All right, so uh, yeah, my my rating, I'm gonna give it four dweller heads. I really enjoyed it, but I had some trouble believing. Yeah, I had some trouble believing in in, in the car accident scene. Just uh, you know, she's gonna get hit. I mean, when you when you're running in front of a car like that, you might as well just be trying to commit suicide, in my opinion. But there's just like that little thing that bothers me. I t- I, I took a star off of. Um, I think they just had to get the car into the tree and it's always the same tree. But other than that, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's a fantastic film. I think it represents so much and you know, four is not a bad rating. So that that's where I stand. It's, it's very good. All right. So we're going to take a quick break and when we return, we are going to close out the show. Oh, it's time to say goodbye. So that was a that was a really good conversation we had with uh, Gwendolyn. She uh, she has a lot of energy. She does. She is so fun. I yeah. just well, I would think that somebody who who writes the kind of fiction that she does would be um, like really serious and and almost like distracted. By like normal human conversation. Yeah, I mean, right, her, her writing is so brilliant. <laughs> I, I think that she'd be above mere conversation. But she's really down to earth and fun. I loved her. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed talking to her, and uh, I hope you guys did too. If you guys enjoyed what you uh, heard here, please feel free to go and uh, give us a rating and a review on iTunes or Stitcher, and. Uh, and if you want to reach out to us, you can do so wherever we're on the internet. Uh, you can email us at dark, sorry, darknessdwellspodcast at mail.com. Um, you can find us on Facebook. We have both a group and a page you can like. We're on Twitter uh, with the handle at darkdweller74. And we have a website. Uh, and now the website is www dot where darkness dwells dot com but that's not the name of the show the name of the show is darkness dwells <laughs> everyone yes. seems to think we're called where darkness dwells because of our address <laughs> but darkness dwells dot com wasn't available at the time and honestly I'm, I'm thinking of changing things up again i'm thinking of uh, actually going to a hosting service where uh that will 
host all our uh, episodes and and then some and uh and and maybe getting a new um because i think you were telling me once that uh darknessdwells.com was available again that was like a year ago i think but uh I might have. I think I did say that. I'm I'm still still petitioning Twitter to get get at Darkness Dwells for us, because the person that has that doesn't doesn't do anything. Yeah, and that's just evil. Give it, give us our Twitter handle, please. Yeah, let us be official. Come on. <laughs> All right. So uh, uh, thanks for listening, everyone, and uh, we have some. Uh, we have some good shows coming up, so pay attention and keep listening, and we will catch you next time. Stay dark, my friends, but don't stay hungry. <laughs> don't, yeah, just don't, try not to be hungry. And if you do get hungry, stay away from the human flesh. Michael. Hungry. <laughs>